You're listening to the Book Talk Today podcast, a podcast that inspires readers to obtain valuable insights to inform, educate, and improve lives. My name is Orn Abdi. I'm an avid reader, best known for the creation of the One Minute Book Review community, and I'm sitting down with authors to delve deeper into the books they have written to uncover the story behind the story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the Book Talk Today podcast. Today, I'll be speaking to Nal Kishtani. Nal is an analyst, researcher, and writer of economics and economic history. And today, we'll be discussing his book, A Little History of Economics. Nile, it's a pleasure to have you on. Lovely to be here. So, like we were saying before we started, I read your book, I want to say, 18 months ago. And having studied economics at school and economics partly at university, I studied politics at university, but I did some um, optional modules in economics. And I was always questioning why disciplines, especially in social sciences, stand alone. I always confused about why they don't, there's not this interrelated, interconnected discipline. And when I read your book, it very much made me happy to see that there is a, a way or a vehicle to find some similarities between different, dif- dis- excuse me, different disciplines. Um, what was it about the subject of economics that first interested you? or made you go down this path? I mean, in terms of when I first studied it, which was, yeah, sort of university years, um, I mean, I guess it, you know, economics is looking at the really big questions of, of human welfare and human well-being. You know, ultimately, you know, how do people get enough food, clothes, medicine to survive and to flourish? And why do, you know, why does that, why do some people not? Uh, manage to get what they need so it's looking at these really big questions if you like of the sort of material basis for human well-being and that you know these are these are you know huge compelling questions that thinkers have, have been engaging with for, for centuries um today's economics does it in a particular way has a particular way of doing that but i think those kinds of questions are what draw people to it. i mean there are there are different reasons that people get into economics but for some people it's um they're interested in sort of finance and the stock market and those kinds of things. For me, that, that was always a sort of subset of a much bigger set of questions, which is really about um, um, human well-being. And this is what the, the book is trying to do, is to set economics in this very broad sort of context, rather than being what some people perceive it to be, as like this very kind of detailed mathematical mm. set of tools, which it, that stuff is important as well, but there's also this sort of broader picture and that, that I think that then connects to what you were saying earlier about economics being into actually being an interdisciplinary thing it's something that talks to philosophy and politics and history or it should do anyway mm. it's not always taught in that way but 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 that's what I'm really interested in so I've always been interested in actually the connections between economics and other other disciplines so I, I hope that comes through in the, in the book as well yeah it definitely comes across in the book and i actually feel like that's a flaw in the way that it's taught because very much when you're at school it's very much about economic models yeah so you start going to sort of graphs and diagrams on yeah. supply and demand and Absolutely. inelastic um goods and it just gets a bit boring <laughs> but once you find out where it sits in the the global picture of what the purpose of it is i think it becomes a lot more interesting Absolutely, absolutely. So that's definitely how today economics is is taught and how most people are sort of introduced to it is through these little um, models and little pieces of um, apparatus like, you know, supply and demand or whatever. And actually most, um, so that's certainly how most sort of college courses start. Um, And also I think a lot of the introductory, there are a lot of very good introductory economics books out there and a lot of them do the same sort of thing. So they'll use those little bits of technique those 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 um, uh, uh, bits of apparatus and then use them to analyze you know aspects of the life that we see around us and that's that's really fascinating and I'm not sort of criticizing that at all um, I suppose what I was trying to do in this book was to say well actually economics is a is a, is a um, it's a it's um uh, there's an intellectual history to it as well mm. you know it's 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 not just so that, that sort of toolkit approach to it is almost a bit like, I wonder, um, uh, treating economics as a kind of engineering where you've got these little tools that you use. That's fine, but there's also a kind of intellectual story, which is that people have been thinking about economic issues since, you know, I mean, the book goes back to the ancient Greeks, mm-hmm. um, thinking about this struggle to uh, 
put in place the material basis for well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, that story is an incredible story of sort of intellectual history and, and sort of disagreement and debate. And, you know, there have been many schools of economists and many different ways of looking at this problem. Um, and actually that, that tends to get lost in a lot of the sort of um, modern way of, of, of talking about economics. So, you know, economics as one of the humanities, economics as being something like philosophy or history or even mm-hmm. literature. Um, I find that a very, um, well, that's something that's neglected in the way that economics is taught today. Um, and yeah, some people can get put off by all the, all the maths and all the, all the graphs that you, you pointed out. Mm. That stuff is really important. I'm not sort of criticising that, but I think it's important to have that sort of broader context as well. I think that's why a lot of people aren't interested in it. I think once you bring the humanistic element of the economic models into it, and you touched upon it in the book as well. And, and I liked, especially that you started with the Greeks, because I think a lot of people, especially in economics, they just go Adam Smith is the first guy. Yeah. And then they just go, they completely forget about everything that came before Adam Smith. And I liked that you went into the Greeks and started talking about the Academy and what were the big thinkers thinking about what, what is the role of money and wealth in society? Yeah. And I think that's really important to go back to the fundamental aspects of, of that. Yeah, I mean, a lot, yeah, a lot of histories of economics do start with Adam Smith. And, and there's probably some good reasons for that. I mean, in a way, um, you know, he was, he was writing on the sort of cusp of the, the Industrial Revolution when the sort of commercial economy, the industrial economy was really burgeoning and creating the sort of economy that we have today. He was talking about markets and how, that, how those how markets generate wealth. That's really important. And in a way that is a, in a way that is a, 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 a staging post in the, the sort of intellectual history. But as you said, I wanted to go further back and, and, and look at thinkers that probably today we might not say, oh, maybe this, what, this, they weren't doing economics in the way that we see it today. But to me, I, I suppose I wanted to cast my net quite widely and, and, and um, have quite a broad definition of what economics was. Anyone who's thinking about these sort of material problems, even if it is done within, say, a religious context mm. or a classical philosophical context. So I've got a later chapter on um, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of Middle Age, the Middle Age and uh, Thomas Aquinas and, 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 and the, you know, the theologians who are thinking about, OK, how can you behave in, a, in an economy that's actually starting to commercialize and become moving towards something that will turn into capitalism? How can you behave in that kind of economy and still be a good Christian? So mm. how can you set a just price that's sort of moral? To me, that's still kind of in, in a way, it's a moral, it's a moral problem, but it's about, it's about economics. It's about how morality and religion connects with economics. So I, I wanted to talk about that as well. Um, so yeah, it's, there's a broad set of sort of, um, uh, issues and philosophical moral questions that connect with the story that I wanted to sort of include there. Yeah, you definitely you definitely did that in the book. If you're going to take a step back, how how would you define economics in the most simplistic way? If someone was to come to you and say to you and say to you, how would you define economics? Well, I would say it's about um, uh, it's it's questions about the, the the material requirements for for human society and for human beings to to survive and to flourish mm. um, that's an incredibly sort of broad <laughs> um, so so it, so in a modern context that would be you know studying um, the different elements of the economy so the consumption the investment the consumers in there the firms how the how the economic output flows between those different segments and then what the outcomes are in terms of people's income and inequality and all that sort of stuff that's the sort of modern take on that very broad question as i said you know earlier takes on it which is much more to do with you know how do these um these economic questions um how 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 do they connect with sort of religious precepts and so on mm-hmm. um so it's, it's really um it's I, I think it's a broad um it's a very broad field and there are many ways of um, sort of making that that question more specific. So the mod, the really modern way of doing it, often economics nowadays defined as the science of scarcity, mm-hmm. um, and that often that's how the first textbooks start. It's like you have a scarce set of resources. How do you decide the trade-offs? For example, that was very much a nineteenth-century sort of concept. Um, to me, that's just one version of this broader question. 
Mm. Uh, that's not how all economists uh, look at the problem. Um, you know, I mean, again, to mention another one, you look at Marx, he's, he's coming at that problem in terms of how do power relations work in, in society? How do, how do, how do, power, how do, how does differential power between social classes, um, you know, uh, affect that, that, that bigger question of the material, the material outcomes for people. Mm. Um, so I, I think of it in very broad, in very broad terms. Um, for some people, it's when you think about economics, you think, oh, it's about finance and money and the stock market. But I think if you see that, that sort of within that broader way of thinking about it, finance and the stock market is just one little element of that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It just fits in as which is one of the pieces in, in the puzzle. One of the of, pieces, of, exactly. Of economics. Um, on, on to Marx quickly. It was, it was interesting in, in, this, in the book, you touched upon his sort of personal story about how he came about to, to write and his, his writing style. Like I didn't know about his personal uh, mental and also physical health issues. And, and that became evident in the book. I was thinking from that perspective, do you believe that that affected the way that he was writing? Because I feel like reading that story about his background, about what he had to go through to write it, there was a bit of spite yeah. <laughs> within that layered upon the, the things that he was writing. I was wondering whether you felt the same way. I mean, it's a great question. I don't, I can't really answer that. So I know, that, but... <laughs> but, but... I mean, in a way, he, yeah, he is this sort of, um, yeah, he's, he, one, yes, he's, a, he's an economist, he's a philosopher, but he's also this sort of um, thundering kind of Hebrew prophet, actually, um, you know, um, writing secular material, but it's, you know, it's got this sort of almost at times millenarian prophetic feel to it. And yeah, I mean, I think, um, I, I, I think, uh, so when he was writing Capital, you know, he had this, he did have these terrible health problems and his carbuncles. This is one thing that the biographers always talk about that, you know, he, he wrote the, the last pages standing at his desk because the carbuncles on, on his body were so painful and that you know then he, he finished the last page and says you know i hope the bourgeoisie will remember my carbuncles till their dying day and i've heard um I, I think some biographers saying you know if you look at the sort of original manuscript there are you know the handwriting is quite crazy had this sort of um tiny you know uh, handwriting there are almost, almost pages where it looks angrier you know, and you wonder whether that was a, you know, he was having a, a tough day with his carbuncles or wasn't feeling too good. Yeah, you know? yeah there's, there's a lot of anger and, uh, you know, he was a very sort of turbulent character. So I'm sure that's in the mix there somewhere. Um, I, I, I'm not, a, a, I'm not as a, enough of an expert Marxian biographer to know precisely, but yeah, it was just it was just something that came to mind when I was yeah. reading the story. I thought to myself, I wonder how many people through history have written something that is quite, um, like you said, prophetic in a way, but sort of going against the grain and in that way. But then they had their personal issues on top of that. Because I'm I'm big into, I like finding relationships between different fields. So I like the, like the psychological aspect of an individual affecting his economic, philosophical uh, uh, policy, his his political views, because that inherently is is related to it the way that you think determines obviously the ideas that 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 come from it absolutely right i mean you know economics is is not um it's not physics or maths where you know there's the atom or there's the you know the the, the experiment that you're doing it's it's you know it's a work of the imagination to some extent um you know how do we how do we create stories and pictures about this thing that is actually invisible i mean it's an economy what is that you know you know what you can't actually see the economy as such you know so it's a work of the imagination so yeah the whole question of the sort of psychological uh, needs and and um characteristics of the people that write it i mean you know in a way it's maybe not a million miles away from you know literature people writing literature and novels and of course you can't separate the person's mm psychology and deep beliefs and biases from from the way that they that they, that they approach things yeah the way they perceive the world definitely uh, one thing that that uh, i was thinking about and or one individual that that i never came across was kesney the, the french doctor mm. and interesting i didn't know about the the tableau economique and mm. how that implicitly implodes the idea of laissez-faire why do you think that his work is somewhat overlooked especially at school 
I don't know. Um, yeah, Canet, Canet, the, the, the French, so this was sort of the first school of, of, of economists, so-called, they're called Les Economistes, um, and the, the, or the, physio, the physiocrats, the, 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 um, the idea of rule by nature, so this idea that the, you know, the, the economic value is located in the agricultural sector, and um, that there's a sort of circulation of value through the economy. And he created this, yeah, this tableau, this this first model. It is, it isn't, it doesn't tend to be taught um, that much. I mean, I don't know. I mean, one one a lot of the um, certainly a lot of the way that economics is taught was taught to me and is, is taught in colleges. It, it's very much sort of Anglo-American kind of discipline. Um, perhaps that that might be part of it that we tend to focus on that that sort of tradition um uh, maybe maybe there's just a i mean history of thought in general is 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 neglected i mean you go to if you study a sort of economics course at university you won't actually study adam smith you'll probably have heard of him mm. Marx. So you'll never actually sit down and and read through his books unless you're sort of doing some very specialist course you really want to sort of go for that but it's generally not part of the the core syllabus um so there's a sense that none of them are are, are highly studied um there is something in Kinney that is quite modern actually which was he was saying you know leave the economy alone and let it let it breathe so the idea of laissez-faire actually comes from comes from that school we still use that that terminology to mean sort of you know let the economy don't sort of smother the economy with too many taxes and regulations and so on so there's a there's a there's a, a legacy there in the, in, in the language that we use but absolutely i mean smith who came just after is much more obviously much more well known um he's talking about perhaps talking about ideas that are more modern and more connected to, to the way that the economy is now so the the the, the Kinney and those guys were really saying um, agriculture is where the value, the ec economic value resides, and actually manufacturing is this sort of, um, um, it, it, it's um, almost like a parasitic. And obviously nowadays we don't, you know, industry and manufacturing, that, of course that's where economic value came from following mm. the revolution. So in some ways it seems like a rather anti slightly antiquated um, kind of theory. It's mm. definitely got it one foot very much in the past in the pre-industrial economy. So perhaps it doesn't quite. But at that time, it would have been he would have seen the world through that. He wouldn't have foreseen he would have seen the world through that lens. He didn't know what, what we see now happening. I mean, even in Adam Smith, he's not, he doesn't talk so much about sort of factories and you know it was he, he wrote the Wealth of Nations in 1776 when you know the the Industrial Revolution was really only just starting. So he wouldn't have used the kinds of terminology that we use today. Um, sure. I mean, it's um, it can be a it can be a puzzle. Why do certain thinkers get? And there there are many in the book that you know you don't really learn about if you do a, a, an economics course. Mm. I mean, I think you know people like Veblen, for example, fascinating thinker. Again, not someone who comes in much to the to the sort of standard syllabus. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I recently read a book, Moneyland, by Oliver Below. Have you have you read that book? So in in that book, it talks about the financial crisis and, and the role that individuals play, um, self-interest in, in particular. And we just uh, brought in Adam Smith and in The Wealth of Nations. He talks about the idea how self-interest actually can govern the economy because it's through self-interest that people can grow and develop and the economy can flourish. Do you think somewhat that antiquated model of self-interest is actually the last, I want to say, 40 years has really exposed that level of self-interest because it's been exploited to a degree. Uh, so, so you mean that that has sort of cast, um, cast doubts on that way of thinking? Yeah. Cast doubts on that yeah. model of thinking about it's purely about self-interest. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting um, to, to sort of look at, look, look at Often, so with Adam Smith, what we often do, we often have this very sort of anachronistic way of looking at him, which is sort of reflecting back 
the way that we, I mean, we do this with, of course we do, we always do this. Yeah. Look at history and ideas through the lens of our own time. You can't not do that. Mm. Um, with Adam Smith, one thing that often happens is, that, is, is to sort of um, really emphasise the fact that, um, or to um, impose on him this idea that, you know, he was arguing just for sort of free markets and um, unbridled self-interest and all that sort of stuff. I think he's a, he's a much more nuanced sort of thinker than that. And in fact, you know, he was a philosopher, so he was very much, he was steeped in sort of moral philosophy. He's got another sort of parallel work to um, The Wealth of Nations, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is all about morality and how people, mm. you know, um, moral virtue and all that, that, that you know, he was a, he was a philosopher. Um, and actually, so his, his, um, his idea of self-interest, I think you need to place, it needs to be placed within a sort of broader context, which is mm. it works if people are, decent um and i suppose his his notion of decent is a sort of you know uh, anglo scottish prudent sort mm. of commercial emerging middle class type of person who's prudent and honest um gentleman's yeah proper and, gentleman and th- within that context self-interest actually works quite well yeah but it, it depends on people being honest and not trying to swindle each other and so on that's often very different from some of the notions of self-interest that are flying around these days or in the last, which is very much a much harder edged sort of libertarian neoliberal kind of self-interest, which I think is quite different to what Adam Smith was talking about. He was talking about a kind of enlightened, I would say kind of enlightened self-interest as opposed to, I don't know, well, you can look at some of the, disasters of neoliberalism and you know what happened in the financial crisis and mm. that isn't, that's that's not kind of you know what, what smith was talking about um, if, if you look back at the roots especially in sort of the the roots of neoliberalism if you can look at reagan or thatcher so reagan in particular in the book you talk about the fact that he lauded the ideas of adam smith so much that they used to wear the tie with his yeah. Yeah. So do you think it's more the fact of a misunderstanding of what he was actually speaking about or a twisting of the ideas to suit their individual? Yes. Well, a bit of both. And I mean, we all, you know, in a sense, we can't, you know, as people with, you know, we all have political views and ideologies and, and politicians have programs they want to implement and views mm. of the world. And we'll always try and look for support for those from different thinkers in, in history and hopefully a prestigious thinker like adam smith and and yeah often that that involves a twisting of, of of what that that person is i think it's a sort of inevitable part of kind of human discourse that we do that i mean of course marx is the big one you know i mean look at what's been done in his name and claims yeah. and so on um so yes i mean i don't think adam smith would have been particularly happy to see the reaganites wearing his you know ties with his with his um picture on, on the front um but but yes that 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 was they, that was one uh philosopher philosopher economist who was sort of harnessed in the cause of, of, of sort of neoliberalism sure going going back to marx it was it was very interesting when i was reading the book i thought to myself why did karl marx connect so much especially in you know the late 1800s early 1900s why did he connect with people and my thought was that it was due to you know the rising inequality amongst people and they sort of it was just right place right time because if someone came out with the ideas of Karl Marx not knowing Karl Marx imagine the previous Karl Marx never existed and someone came out with that theory now people would just be like that guy's crazy just just ignore that guy because that just doesn't work but I think that right place right time with Karl Marx at that time was was why that philosophy rose up but do you do you have that do you have that way of thinking when it came to his his teachings well, and what he was saying yeah I mean it, you know why do particular thinkers why do some thinkers uh why why does why why does their thought spawn whole schools of, of thought that you know then live on beyond their their work I mean that's an incredibly complex question but yes i mean you know there were there were circumstances at the time that meant that that that, that, that his work did and then you had you know the, the the political situation early 20th century in russia and and it was used in a modified form as a way of of, of, of underpinning that um you know you could imagine another set of historical circumstances where he would be you know have been just another one of many 
prophet-like 19th century thinkers who built huge elaborate systems of, of history and so on who was who, who was not remembered um i mean i i you know i think that that um, I, I, perhaps in, in recent years, Marx has had a bit of a, a bit of a moment. I mean, not that people are talking about, you know, having necessarily a communist revolution, but actually the main part of, of Marx, the main interesting, I think, element of his, his work is not so much the stuff about communist revolution, but actually mm. a- analysing capitalism and thinking mm. about, you know, how power relations and, and inequality sort of tends to get reproduced under capitalism. And, you know, I, I mean, I think probably a lot of that is as relevant today as it was back then, actually. Um, so, I definitely think there's a resurgence of of those ideas. I think because people are questioning the ideas of the capitalism that we see now, and seeing the the inequalities rising. I think that's why you're seeing seeing the resurgence, especially of people wanting that type of. Uh, economic way of thinking whether it's whether it's the right one i don't know i don't know whether that's the case but i definitely think there's a conversation or discourse to be had about the utility of the current system that we have absolutely absolutely and you know what you take from but you know marx was writing you know in the middle of the 19th century what you take from going back to the earlier point about the you know you see things through the lenses of your own uh, moment um, mm. you know what what we'll take from him will be different to what people would have taken from him at the beginning of the 20th century you know um, but I mean he's such a fertile complex contradictory thinker that you know there are likely to be things in there that that, that resonate with our own time probably to do with how power works and so on within how power works within the economy mm. and, yeah when I was reading the book you you also mentioned Alfred Marshall and the idea of marginal utility. Um, I was reading the example you gave about the hot dogs and the coke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering whether you can just elaborate on the idea of marginal utility because I was reading it and I thought to myself, I think I would like him to be explaining this to me in person because I think it might make a bit more sense. So for those that are listening or watching, can you explain what marginal utility is and the impact that that had? Sure. I mean, it's to do, I mean, it's, it's actually to do, I think uh, uh, at the beginning, I mentioned that one way of thinking about economics is to do with um, scarce resources. So this, this very much comes out of thinkers like Alfred Marshall in, in the 19th century. So thinking about, um, basically the idea is um, you've got, you've got a scarce amount of stuff, you've got a fixed amount of stuff and you need to kind of optimise. How do you mix it? How do you decide whether to have, you know, more hot dogs or more Cokes because you can't go on forever. There's a fixed amount, there's a, mm. there's a scarcity. And similarly for firms deciding what to do, how to, how to produce things, there's a sort of scarcity. So you have to sort of optimise. So the idea of marginal utility is just, um, this is looking at a particular, an individual, um, uh, I might. I, I, um, I've only got a certain amount of money that I can spend on. If you make it very simple, um, hot dogs, and I think my example was hot dogs and can, cans of coke, <laughs> like this. So marginal utility is just: if I eat one more hot dog, how much happier? How much more? Ha- how much extra happiness does that does that give me? So suppose I'm now, my level of happiness now is fifty, right? 50, I don't know what, 50 somethings. Yeah. <laughs> and then I eat a hot dog and now I'm 51, right? So that, the marginal utility is one, okay? Um, and, but suppose that, suppose I drank a can of Coke and that gave me, that pushed me up to 53, right? So that the marginal utility of the can of Coke is, is three. So actually in this situation, the marginal utility of the can of Coke is bigger than the marginal utility of the hot dog. So what an optimizer would do is actually keep consuming cans of Coke because that gives you more of a utility hit. Mm. Yeah, that's the, mar- the idea of margin- marginal utility. But the other idea that's connected to this is the idea that marginal utility tends to diminish. So if I drink you know, one more can of Coke, yeah, great. But if I drink another, I might start feeling a bit sick. If I drank another hundred, you know, that would be <laughs> pretty terrible. So at some point it will kind of level off. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're so the idea is that you basically um, the optimum um, mix is when basically the marginal utility of an extra hot dog is the same 
as a marginal utility of an extra can of Coke. And then it's kind of perfectly balanced. My consumption is perfectly balanced. Mm. Okay. So that's called optimization. And this is because at that point I can't increase my utility by any other mix of, 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 cans of cokes and hot dogs I've because you're perfectly satisfied is that I'm the idea? Satisfied. so with the amount of money that i have mm. i've achieved the perfect mix of cans of coke and hot dogs now of course it's a very sort of contrived example in practice you have many things that you're trying to buy but it's the idea that people are basically optimizers so they've got a fixed amount of money they've got their income and they're a fixed amount of money in the short run okay imagine i've got a weekly wage i've got i've got to decide what to do with it the idea that people are able to calculate rationally okay how do i mix the things that i buy what mix of things should i buy but it also extends to for example a firm what mix of inputs should i use to produce my whatever it is that i'm producing so that's a particular way of thinking about the economy as this sort of optimizing system so when you when you hear people talk about sort of rational economic They'll say rational economic man, but yeah, rational economic people, um, rational economic men and women um, are basically people that do that really well. And that's been the sort of basic assumption of, that's been the basic sort of psychological model of human behaviour that has been embedded in a lot of modern economic models, um, is, is that people do, that's what people do, that's what people are. They're people that consume op- and, and optimise, they consume rationally and they optimise. And from that, from that, you can derive all sorts of theories and, you know, you can actually express that quite nicely in mathematical terms, which is probably why it's been one reason why it's been so popular. Mm. It's, obviously, it's a very crude notion of human behaviour, but you can express it in terms of maths quite easily um, and then use it to construct all sorts of models. Yeah, and the, the application for the individual and the firm, I think, is why it's probably mm. been applied over time, because you can apply that to, let's say, like you said, a firm with how they go about their marginal utility of let's say one client over another and one employee over the other. But then you can apply it to myself, like a marginal utility of one book might be more than another, just because I feel like it gives me more value. And if they even apply it to, you know, the labor market that you're, you, you, you are as a, you're a consumer, but you're also a supplier of labor. You think about, okay, the marginal utility of, um, uh, you know you compare your way you compare your wage rate to okay how much benefit do i get from having a bit of extra leisure or going to work you know so you even use that optimizing framework to think about so you can sort of use it everywhere and that's what economics has, has actually a lot of modern economics does it kind of applies it everywhere um and um that's very powerful but there's obviously huge shortcomings to it and, and that leads into a lot of the critiques of, of economics is that it's used that much too sort of promiscuously in a way but that that, that model's used everywhere and then you come i mean so there's even um there's a chapter in there about gary becker um who um was a uh, uh, university of chicago economist who sort of uses that who started applying that model that way of thinking to actually areas that you would normally think of not being part of economics so part of sociology so he he had a whole, um, he wrote papers on the economics of crime, for example, that used that same sort of optimising model. So a criminal might think, okay, what's the benefit, what's the monetary benefit of committing this crime versus, you know, the, the, the disutility of being punished for it and so on. And he even, even applied it to sort of marriage, thinking about marriage as sort of marriage market where people are optimising stuff there. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's powerful in the sense you can apply it to lots of different contexts, but as you sort of start to spread it thinner across the social world, across the mm-hmm. social space to marriage and so even to racism and things like that, you know, how, um, uh, how, how, how useful is it? I mean, so a lot of people are very, have been very critical of, of that sort of movement in economics. Yeah. But that, I think that's the same with any theory that, or any way of thinking, if you apply it to enough things, it sort of loses its power to a degree, doesn't it? Because then there's more things that can counter it. I think that's sure, just an, any sure. way of thinking. I think yeah. it can't be applied to every scenario and to every yeah. other discipline. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, some people, I mean, sort of the, some of the more sort of um, the, some of the, the, the critics of economics would say that, that, that economists have been a little bit overconfident. Uh, is, is the, or should I use the word arrogant, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> the way that they've applied that, those ideas of sort of optimizing and, and optimization and the sort of rational 
um, economic, rational economic people. I mean, even to another sort of element of it is going back to the sort of neoliberal discussion that we were having earlier. Yeah. It's this whole area of public choice theory, which are, there's a chapter in, in the book about public choice theory. The basic idea of which is to apply a kind of optimizing rational economic person framework to politics itself. So actually that politicians are simply sort of entre- uh, simply optimizers who are trying to maximize the gains over the costs to them. And so politics is just this big sort of marketplace. It's not mm. really about the, the classical sort of notion of politics as people who are, you know, a public good, people trying to work for the public good. That's mm. all sort of nonsense. And um, that's one sort of building block for neoliberalism has been that sort of notion of, of politics, which was sort of developed um, by a school of economists who I talk about, again, possibly a very, very, I would say, very sort of problematic way of thinking about politics and probably quite a damaging one mm. in the long run in the, in the way that it's helped to sort of corrode the idea of politics and of citizenship, um, that it's just a kind of, um, it's just a, a game, a market that, mm. that grubby politicians are getting into for their own um, self-interest. Self-interest. Because I think there's a reflexivity in these stories that actually the more you tell these stories, the more you create that kind of world. Mm. This is not physics. This is this is about people. This is about the imagination in, in, in some respects. Yeah, it's how as how it manifests into reality. I think that's the important thing. Like you said, is it's not like an experiment that you do in a lab and see right. how it plays out. It's very much the decisions that uh, an, a rational rational actor makes, uh, whether they're a politician or an economist, has real world effects on how people yeah. live their lives and on you know countries and and, yeah. and and their effects on on societies in general. Yeah. Um. It was interesting that w- we just talked about the rational actors because I was, when I was reading the Veblen, uh, the the chapter you wrote in Veblen, and, and the idea of how we buy things not so much to satisfy our own desires, but to actually be approved by others. And do you think this was a shift from pure economics, from a macro scale into understanding how our consumption drives human behavior? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a shift from, um, it, it, it definitely stands slightly apart from mainstream economics for sure. Because it's actually not really, it's not really using any of those economic concepts that I've talked about, um, mm. optimization. So actually the optimising, that person deciding between cans of Coke and hot dog, that sort of almost like this, that kind of robotic kind of character, is completely in their own bubble. They don't care about really what other people are thinking. They're just, all they care about is their utility function, as they call it, the, the resource equation. How do you optimise? That's it. You're just thinking about optimising for your own uh, well-being and, and, and your own utility but this is a very different so Veblen was very much I mean he was someone who was yes he was an economist but he was really heavily rooted in anthropology and philosophy I and mean, he was this incredibly wide reader um, he, he, he read all sorts he spent really the you know the, the first few decades of his he was he was a bit of a loose cannon you know hiding on his parents farm reading books from all sorts of fields and I think mm. that shows in, in, in his work so I, th- I would say it's very much sort of anthropological or maybe even sort of psychological mm. notion of, of economics so he's sort of saying that rather than being these sort of cool optimizers we're actually just sort of status seeking yeah. people um, and he makes an analogy with sort of um, I don't know, tribal societies perhaps where gifts are given not for their utility but to make a sort of um, for, for, for reasons of sort of social um, reasons of social status, you might give a gift mm. to a more senior person, and, and you know there there are sort of anthropological works about you know gift um, circulation in some of these some of these tribal societies. So I think he uses some of these ideas and says that actually, even in a capitalist society, you might think are a million miles away from those kinds of um, tribal societies, we're doing pretty much a similar sort of thing. So he was writing during the, the Gilded Age of the, the, the rise of the great tycoons, Carnegie and Vanderbilt and so on. As they say, they're not optimizers. They're just essentially um, engaging in conspicuous consumption. They're just consuming massive amounts to show that 
they're wealthy and that their wives don't have to work because they're so wealthy and it's a kind of status type thing. And of course, I mean, you see that, of course, that's, that's very much in the economy now. You see that yeah. among, among certain, you know, certain segments of, 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 of the economy and very super rich people and so on. Um, I think there's a lot of insight in there, not, not maybe the, the specifics, but also actually um, um, thinking about um, economics as um, uh, well, providing an alternative to, to the sort of optimizing framework that actually economics also sort of anthropology is to do with the sort of the yeah. anthropology of the anthropological context in which it takes place and, and the broader sort of institutional framework that he talked about as well, that is quite hard to reduce to these sort of mathematical utility functions. So he's a very, a very sort of interesting, fertile, mm-hmm. radical sort of thinker. Yeah, I think the reason why it connected with me so much is I've been reading a lot about human behavior and psychology, really, the last couple of months. So that's been my, my field of, of reading. That's where I've done a lot of my reading. And I think I look at what's happening at the moment with the Internet and social media and that kind of stuff. And it's just a lot of I, what I call peacocking. A lot of the time is what people do is they show off their status symbols about uh, I don't know how much they earn, their material goods. It's very I feel like the consumption at the moment is very is everything's very material in, in what it in when it gives people value of. It's not so much on a basis of what value does it give me sort of spiritually. If we're gonna to go to the medieval times, it'd be done on like what is spiritually is this giving me? What moral value is this giving me? These items, it's very much what material benefit is it giving me in relation to what people are saying about me or perceiving? Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you know, it's a to a to someone who's not 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 an economist, they might say, "Well, yeah, that's so obvious. That's not a particularly, you know, big insight that Veblen was making." But actually, in a way, when you when you set it alongside the sort of dominant way of thinking in economics, which that that sort of that earlier framework that I was talking about, optimizing and, and so on, doesn't really have room for that sort of irrational way of of, uh, of engaging with the economy and um you know it, 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 i think it was a very sort of powerful uh, powerful idea so the idea of that I, I think we still use in, in common parlance the, the sort of term conspicuous consumption don't we and, and that that comes from from veblen actually that was his mm. he coined that that phrase um um so yeah it's it's it's, it's really important it's important and as you say it's very much still very much relevant today i mean when you look at very much so yeah um related to that when i was reading the chapter on schumpeter and on monopolies i thought it was very timely because what you're finding at the moment is this big throwback to large organizations whether it's amazon apple google you know these large monopolies that are driving what he coins as creative destruction Mm -hmm. and how he actually thought that it was a good thing because it's those companies that really drive innovation because they have the resources to do so. But at the moment, you're finding a massive backlash to these massive organizations, you know, mainly just due to the fact that they don't pay any tax, which is, which is logically just unreasonable to, based on how much they're making. But do you think that, that those monopolies in the long term have a negative impact? Or do you see as that creative destruction being the driver of jobs and the economy as a whole but for, for yeah, instance, I mean, over I, the long term it might have negative effects on yes yeah I, 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 would, I would agree with all of what you just said there i mean you know um yes you do need so the the sort of um that that um going back to that sort of um we we're talking about alfred marshall mm-hmm. um that way of thinking about the economy that that that, that sort of emerged in, in, in from his sort of school of economics um was about um, uh, the sort of dominant way of thinking about markets with which in which people operated was this idea of perfect competition. So this idea that there were no, there would be no big firms, there wouldn't be no dominant firms, that everyone was having to compete um, with each other. Lots of small firms competing with each other. So no one firm would have any market power. And economists are particularly um, sort of enamoured of that idea because it, you can prove all sorts of very nice results about the economic out. You basically you end up with a very efficient economic outcome because everyone is competing. It, max, it maximizes what's called consumer surplus, basically the kind of utility that people get from from their goods. Once you introduce these sort of what they call imperfections into the system, one of which is big firms, monopolies that have market power and therefore can actually set their own prices and control prices, 
you don't get those results anymore you get all sorts of problems um, so that's the root of the kind of um, dislike of, of monopolies among among economists I mean I think that that you know it's a simplistic kind of model and in practice there are reasons why some firms get very big because of technology and because of certain structures within within the economy that you sort of, that just that, that's well for example you can't have perfect competition of um, say like water supply you couldn't have lots of different firms um uh with their own pipes mm. you basically have one sort of network so that's what's called a sort of a network. didn't think i don't think you want that as well no you wouldn't exactly so there are there are actually all sorts of reasons and you know what schumpeter was talking about was was for to to um incentivize sort of this, this kind of innovative drive that, that you need for an economy to power forward you kind of need elements of monopoly to emerge to, mm. to incentivize that and i think there's i think there's there's sort of massive insight in in what he was saying and actually some more modern economists have used that to create models of the entire economy growth models based on this idea of elements of monopoly power and their monopoly profit that then drive innovation and i think that's a really important part of how the economy works having said all that your your sort of negative point which was but then you you do eventually run into problems yeah. absolutely and if you look at what's going on today with certain companies getting so powerful and then avoiding tax and so on you have you have real you have real problems um and you know you probably need some sort of intervention and you know this is why we have regulatory frameworks uh, to deal with that i mean the whole question of of um social media now of course is getting much more complex because, it, mm. because of what it actually does i mean it's it's not just you know um a giant widget firm or something it's mm. you know the firms that supply the space for political discourse and you know so it's it's so much it's so much more complex than economics actually when it when it comes to that to that that to that stuff um but yeah it's it, it's a really it's a really um uh, it's a really complex one um the idea of an economy um, made up of lots of little tiny firms that are competing against each other kind of went out the window mm. once the industrial economy started get, getting going. Um, but it's interesting it's over the last year, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's interesting over the last year, there's, there's been a big push for small business. Uh, there's been, there's been, you know, companies that are, that are, whether they're credit card companies, that they're, they're pushing big on small businesses i know google's pushing big on small businesses but i think that i don't know where it's going to go for a monopoly point of view i know there's a big pushback in america for big companies and sort of the data that they're they're relating and i think it's just going to become heavily regulated Um, how that manifests and from a technological innovation point of view i'm not sure like i'm currently reading this book um life 3.0 by max tech it's about um artificial intelligence and in that book, it's saying about ah, we need to get regulators in on artificial intelligence early to basically go through all of this paperwork about what is the regulatory frameworks for artificial intelligence? How does that manifest into the market? Because I think that's where perhaps the social media aspect or the internet yeah. was late to because they didn't do that regulatory framework. And it got to the stage now where you have this massive pushback and that will stall innovation. But then how do you, get people in early like the governments and and yeah. those regulatory no, frameworks yeah absolutely i mean i'm certainly no expert on regulatory regulatory framework oh, not either the products that these as i said coming back to the point that it's you know uh, the, the the standard economic textbook thinks of a monopoly as you know a, a, a firm selling a very well-defined product like it's a monopoly for pencils or apples or whatever but now the products that these these the you know google and twitter and so on are selling are so sort of complex and fast moving and um so much connected with actually these sort of intangible things like uh space you know spaces in which people have debates like that's the product that they're they're supplying that actually the the the, 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 the that sort of old type of regulatory um, framework that you sort of learn about in in, in, in economics courses doesn't, it seems to be a rather antiquated way of, of looking at these things now so it's mm. the technical the sheer speed of technological and social change that that is 
that surrounds these firms mean that we probably have to think about it in very new new ways um, uh, particularly you know in the, in the last few weeks what's been happening in, in America and so on yeah definitely in the book you talked about the idea of I mean we're, we're currently speaking about the, the backlash to current economic models of thinking and even to extend out into social and political ways of thinking as well and economists you said call that in the book you, you mentioned a moral hazard where the actions are unknown do you feel like that is part of the reason of the backlash is there's so many moral hazards related to the system that we currently have because people don't know how it works and they feel like there is there's definitely injustices in the system implicit injustices in the system whichever country you're in but people are fearing that because there is those moral hazards everywhere Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's um, yeah, that's. I, th- I think that's right. I mean, you know, the, the idea of moral hazard is a, in a way, it's a much more, it's a very specific kind of idea in in economics, which is that, um, again, it sounds incredibly sort of commonsensical, mm. but but it took economists quite a long time to figure it out that if people markets don't work very well if people don't know if people don't have all the information about sort of what's going on, so if markets start to get opaque. People don't really know what's going on. You get all these problems like moral hazard. The other, the other sort of concept connected to that is something, something called adverse selection. Um, and so, if you look at something like the financial crisis, you know you had this rip, so, you know, so large that you know the, the financial system basically collapsed. Um, and 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 a big part of this was because of really kind of opaque, complex kind of information that no one knew. No one knew what what their products were even you know even the people that were selling these financial products um so you had these enormous sort of moral hazard problems and and and, and with and the bailouts of, of of the banks you know this huge sort of moral moral hazard problem that people worry about so absolutely and thinking using those terms as a sort of metaphor for the sort of broader sense of an economy that's so sort of complex and opaque and subject to sort of power relations that are to sort of get behind then yeah, I mean it's 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 a really important uh, it's a really important thing. I mean again, going back to a lot of standard economics assumes that the economy is this very transparent, rational thing that everyone knows about. Mm. All the sort of um, big models in economics, sort of so-called rational expectations, that everyone's able to understand the economy and predict what's going to go, what's going to happen and what's going to happen with policies and how policies are going to affect the economy and sort of adjust accordingly. Of course, it isn't like that. And, and mo- for most part, people feel kind of con- confused and if as if they're part of this very opaque uh, system. Mm. Um, so, yeah. There was one quote that, that I found in the book was quite funny. noted down here, the purpose of studying economics is to learn how to avoid being deceived by economists. I thought that was, yeah. a, I thought was a great quote because, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's true for, for any field that you are interested in is how not to be deceived by, by the well, exactly. That field. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I suppose, and that's really, I mean, that was one of the reasons I suppose why I, I wanted to write the book was, was to give to give people a way to get to get behind some of these debates um economics has had a i mean i think people often have a quite extreme reactions to it you know when you say economics or economists mm-hmm. on the one hand people sort of going back to what we were talking about the maths and the models oh this is very complicated stuff and you know i don't understand all the maths and just leave it to the the professionals who sort of understand this stuff on the other hand there's often this very particularly since perhaps the financial crisis strong antipathy towards economics that it actually has become too narrow it's become you know outdated it didn't predict the financial crisis and then you had you know the whole dislike of experts and politicians saying we've had enough of experts and and brexit and so on Um, so there's often quite an extreme reaction to it a rejection of it or a kind of submissive feeling that you know it's something that i can't understand i don't you know let's just let's not get involved with it i suppose what i'm trying to do with this book is to give people a bit of an intermediate point that actually yes you can get behind some of these debates and see where they come from and know historically have a bit of information about where these ideas came from historically Mm. then and therefore stand in a little bit of a more assertive pose uh, in relation to economics and and and, um, it's something that all citizens have to be sort of that sounds rather quaint word to use but i think in terms of 
you know, thinking about how democracy functions, a mm. functioning democracy uh, is one where people are able to engage with these topics and therefore cast their cast their vote in a way that that, that makes sense for them. So, sort of having some kind of um, uh, way of um, connecting with economic debates is is really important for that. Um, I think that's where the internet has helped innumerably to get people educated on topics where perhaps they didn't have the information before. Uh, I've, I've seen this, especially at the moment. I think there's a growing trend amongst individuals my age, but even younger, especially in their sort of late teens, early 20s, they're questioning the system in a good way because they, they have access to information from people who are not experts um, or perhaps they are uh, challenging views that are that were inherently the case, and I think that's that's really important to to get. I recently read a book um, called Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. I, I don't know if you've read it, but the idea in that is that experts, for instance, are sometimes so entrenched in their ideas of thinking that they don't they they hold on to that and they hold on to failures on their side because um, you know their reputation is on the line and. Absolutely. Of course, absolutely, and I mean economics is is a huge uh, element of that. You know that they, that, uh, you know, particularly with the, when the financial crisis came along. You know, why were people were really starting to ask much more urgently? You know, why have economists hung on to these these models that seem much too narrow and much too uh, making much too heroic sort of assumptions about human behaviour and markets for so long? And yeah the black box thinking idea. I mean, you know, what we think of, you know, uh, Thomas Kuhn's idea of paradigm shifts. They don't, it's not that people see, um, uh, see things that conflict with their theory and then say, okay, let's change the theory. They sort of patch the theory up and so on. It's not, you know, because of course people have vested interests in, in the theory that they're propounding. They're not going to immediately sort of um, uh, move to a new theory and reject, reject what they've been, working on all their lives so yeah yeah so that's an interesting thought um what interested me as well was uh, towards the latter end of the book you start talk, talking about thomas piketty famous famous economist and, and the idea about if there's an equality in the system the economic system is incumbent upon all of us to to find a way to change it or adapt it in a way and i either you 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 um dedicated a chapter to the idea of getting women involved in economics and the power that that has from an education point of view. It's not the sense of um, the, the idea of the rational actor was always the male person in, in mm. history and economic thinking. And it's, mm. it's changed. And there was that, um, there was that uh, economics, I, f- I forget her name, but she sort of broke the mold in, in that, in that respect from economic thinking. Where do you think it comes from the change in economic models. Do you think it's from an education point of view? It's increasing literacy rates. It's getting people um, educated on what it means to, to like you said, live in an, an economy that is that suits the needs for most. So, so hang on. So, the question is, how do how do economic paradigms shift and change? And yeah, what is the vehicle for that? Like in, in the book, you very much mentioned that implicitly that could be from an education point of view, um, globally education point of view, getting people more educated, um, not only on just economics, but just in general, because the more people that become educated, the more people that have, you know, an understanding of the system that we're in. If, if people don't have literacy rates, then how are they going to yeah. know their, their yeah. economy functions? Sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, all, that's, all that is very, very important. I mean, how economic thought because I, I guess you know economic thought is driven by in the first instance on quite a narrow group of people which is the people that write economics so you know policy makers and well in the first instance i suppose professors and academics and people that, that sort of produce the economic literature how does that stuff change and how did those paradigms change i mean that's a very sort of complicated question of, of sociology of knowledge and why do these I mean, in economics, there are, I mean, you can certainly look at some shifts that have happened over the 20th century. I mean, one of those big, big shifts that I talk about in the book um, into sort of Keynesian economics after the war. I, I mean, that very much came out of a situation of crisis. So you had the Great Depression um, and then you had the, the Second World War. Um, and in a, in a sense, that 
set of that set of historical circumstances gave birth to a new a new way of thinking about the economy and a new way of, of running the economy and there was this new kind of set of thought that, that had come from John Maynard Keynes who'd written his sort of books in the, in the 30s and that, that was in a sense the world was then ready for those new ideas which were sort of break from what had come before mm. um, and then similarly later on the sort of overthrow of Keynes in the 1970s again another economic crisis mm. the world was then ready for Friedrich Hayek you know he'd been writing a bit earlier so there's definitely a kind of crisis element to it I wonder what's going to come out of, because I guess we are in some sort of crisis. I mean, in the sense that, you know, the financial crisis didn't happen so long ago and we're still sort of dealing with that. And, and now of course, COVID and, you know, it's been a very, very turbulent start to the, to the 21st century and what will, and then climate change, of course, the, the big sort of policy problem that's hanging over us. What will that give birth to? I don't know um but um how these things change is sort of quite is is really very very, very complex um uh i certainly think that you know i mean that probably the point that i was making in the book about education was to do with uh democracy and and you know that that that, that for democracies to function people sort of need to know what's going on basically mm-hmm. um although otherwise you get some of the problems and the pathologies that we're now seeing in some of the advanced democracies um, and, and that sort of, I, I, I think, you know, starting economic and sort of political education very young is really important that we don't do it, you know. Um, that's maybe a slightly separate question to the sort of narrower kind of intellectual one of why do economic, how do economic schools develop? Um, they are connected, though, because, of course, there's an element, I mean, for example, um, after the Second World War, there was a sense of society was ready actually for a new kind of economy. It was ready, you know, they'd see, people had seen how well planning and the government running the economy had worked during the war and they were then ready for something, something else. So there's a broader sense of, there's a broader question of how does the public consciousness then connect with whether particular kinds of particular new theories are going to be accepted politically and then used um, you know as a framework for, for government and, and economic policy i definitely like that idea that you were saying about it's a bit weird if i say i like the idea of a crisis but i definitely agree with the idea that it's only through crisis that things can there's paradigm shifts in ways of thinking because it's I, th- I think it's like a human nature thing it's only until things really go bad do we really think about things um which well, is, I think, um, like you said, it's, it'd be interesting to see the fallout of the last year. Yeah, what, yeah. what impact will that have? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So what's, what's next for you then from, from, I mean, this book came out in, was it 2017, 2018? It's been a few years ago, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, uh, how, how would you have written it differently knowing what you know now would you would you have introduced anything into the book if you were to write another version of it what would you adapt and change I always like to ask that because <laughs> I think it's a funny question because I think yeah. I don't know some authors say yeah I would have changed that I would have done that differently based on feedback or people say that you know yeah. hindsight's twenty twenty kind of thing yeah I mean I, I suppose I was trying to write a book that 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 didn't um because of the nature of it that it talks about you know um, an intellectual story that goes back to the ancient Greeks Mm. so in a way it's quite a timeless sort of story I mean I think and that was the I think that was one of the aims of the book was it it was to help people get behind the immediate headlines so not to write an economics book that's incredibly current and about you know Brexit or something um, a a sort of hot current topic it was much more of a sort of timeless story than that so I think a lot of it actually would 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 be the same Um, how would I, I mean, the, 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 obviously we've had Brexit, there probably would have been more on, on those sort of issues and trade, possibly trade issues and, and sort of uh, that side of things. Climate change, perhaps, I mean, I've got the final chapter on that does talk about climate change. Perhaps that would have been, perhaps there would have been more on that, the, 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 um, 
safety issue has in a sense sort of accelerated in, in its urgency since then. But I think in general it's it's um it's supposed to tell a, a kind of big long-term story. Um so I think a lot of it might not have might not have changed too yeah. much. And as I suggested, next is we or we briefly spoke about it before the start of it. But your your next book is the idea of uh, utopianism in London. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's about yeah. So it's a bit of a different you know moving away from mm. you know pure economics writing really. Um, well, not that 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 the little history wasn't really pure economics writing because it had as you said sort of history and and, and other things in there, um, but moving much more towards a sort of narrative type of story about yeah about London and about utopianism and the, the utopian visionaries that have, have, have been in the city um, over the centuries and how they've thought about the city and, and you know there are bits of economics in there of course a big part of that is how we how we relate to you know London as this extraordinary sort of uh, you know uh, uh, place of, of, of commerce and markets that, that was the you know in a way the, the first city to really become a big capitalist capitalist city and how utopians have used that as a, a for as an inspiration and also as something to rail against mm. um so so that that's that's the current book so a little bit different to to um to this one but hopefully some big ideas some big personalities and a, and a sort of historical sweep to it which which um, which is, is 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 what you get in, in both of these books. I like to think about how how ideas kind of connect up over time and yeah. create a, a sort of imaginative lineage that 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 we, we can still use today and that still informs how we how we envision things and imagine things. Definitely. How far how far are you going back in the utopian then from a historical? Well, I'm going point back to um, uh, Thomas More in the in the 16th century. So he. Okay. Um, you know, he, he invented the word utopia, but that seemed like a great place to start. He was this obviously very famous Londoner at the heart of London life. Um, so it's, in a sense, you know, utopian thought has been going on, you know, predates Thomas More, I would say, but still that was, that seemed like a very, narratively speaking, a very nice place to start. Yeah, definitely. And I like the idea that you were suggesting about those threads through time. Yeah. I think that historical narrative, and I think that's what you did really well in, in this book, is that what is the thread that holds all of it together? Because you, you started it off the book by talking about the Greeks and you ended it talking about the Greeks saying, we're still trying to answer their initial question. Right. Um, like, what is the purpose of um, economics and what is the purpose of money and, and how it dictates our society and us as individuals? And that, 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 that maybe we've lost that, that deeper sense of purpose, like what's it all for? Um, and, and the Greeks, you know, thought of that in terms of the virtues and what it means to be a good citizen and a, a, and a fulfilled person. We've maybe lost a bit of that now. <laughs> you know, we've, 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 since the 19th century, you know, created this amazing economic machine. But sometimes one wonders, what, what, is, it, what is it for? Yeah. Um, there are some obvious things that it's for. It creates hospitals and schools and but when you think about something like climate change you think ah okay what, what, what are the what are the downsides of this so yeah i think that's why i wanted to circle back to the back to the greeks because if you put it within that broader context of human virtue and human well-being and so on i think you get some other kinds of answers to that question definitely that's why people should read the book a little, a little history of economics no, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us today. It was, it was an absolute pleasure. Mm -hmm. Can people find you? Um, your website? Yeah. Uh, .com. Um, um That's my website. And you can link to me on Twitter and so on. Excellent. Excellent. And we look forward to, to the new book as well. Sounds, uh, sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading it. Thank you once again. And uh, yeah. Nice speaking to you all. Nice speaking to you too. Thank you, Noel.